Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The last words of that hymn are striking, Bid Me Up and Die. We are longing to be free from sinning as that hymn sings, and so we confess our sins before God. Hear the call to confession from Proverbs chapter 4 this morning. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to all their flesh. Solomon here warns his son to keep his words in his ears and in his eyes and in his heart. We have to keep God's word on the radar screen of our mind. Because of our sinful nature, we tend to forget. We tend to lose track. We tend to wander off after other things. We think that our time is our own, that our lives are for us to use as we want. And we forget that we are servants of the Lord Jesus, that we are bought with a price, and that we are called to do his will. So let us keep God's word and will always before us. This is not a hard service. Verse 22 reminds us that God's words are life and health. Too often we believe Satan's lie that real life is found in doing what we want or in the real world of earning a living. But man does not live by bread alone. We live by the words that come out of God's mouth. And not believing that is the root of sin. So let us confess our sins before Almighty God. Oh, come, let us worship Him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you give us words of life. Lord, help us to regard these words as life. Uh, for you have indeed given us good news a gospel, an evangel that truly saves us from the dire situation we were in. Help us to remember that situation, uh, to recognize your rescue, and to turn to you in faith, in hope, and in devotion. We pray in Christ's name. There's a CREC elder that I'm acquainted with who's extended family was involved in the communist um, party's uh, takeover of China. On the other side, they were ejected from China. 1949, uh, the communists took over China and ejected all the Christian missionaries, uh, as well as uh, many who began the, the new nation of Taiwan. It seemed a very great setback at the time, but today the Christian church in China has grown to 40 times its size since that day 60 years ago. 60? 70? It's quite astounding the way God takes uh, apparent setbacks like that and brings growth to his people. That's part of what we see today. God's gospel uh, reaches unlikely people and we see that Uh, in this chapter. Let's consider verse by verse. 
first of all, we see the persecution expanding the witness in verses 1 through 3. Uh, the martyrdom of Stephen doesn't stop with Stephen. Uh, there's a continued uh, persecution of all believers in Christ. The church is scattered because of it. It says, except the apostles. We're not quite sure what that means or why. Why did the apostles not scatter? Usually the persecutions would take the leaders first, uh, but they escape and they stay in the city. And that's not really explained. Perhaps there's a supernatural protection going on there. We don't know. We also see in uh, verse 3, uh, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Uh, Saul is not just causing random chaos. Uh, Saul is trying to destroy, uh, much as Hitler sought to exterminate the Jews. Uh, if you've seen a documentary, of, of a, a nature documentary, right, of how a predator uh, goes after its prey, uh, that's kind of the Greek word here. Hunt, pursue with an intent to tear apart, ravage, and destroy. That's what Saul's doing. And of course, this fulfills Scripture. Before all these things are fulfilled, Jesus says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Luke 21, 12. So uh, Acts, Luke continues in volume 2 of his book, Acts, to show that in volume 1, the prophecies that, that Jesus made are being fulfilled in volume 2. Uh, Saul here, I, I find it interesting, goes against the, the advice of his teacher Gamaliel. If you remember back in chapter, I forget, 6 or 7, uh, when the Sanhedrin meets, uh, I think it's 4 actually, uh, to discuss what to do about Peter and John, right? Gamaliel says, just let him be. If it's of God, you can't fight it. And if it's not, it'll blow over, right? Saul goes against this. Notice, he, he's not going to let it go, and he actively hunts them down. I have a, a hunch uh, uh, that this has something to do with age, and this could be, um, I don't know, maybe this isn't in the text at all, but I think uh, Gamaliel is definitely an older, uh, more moderate uh, teacher. Saul is definitely the next generation coming up, and Saul is a zealous young man. Uh, and it, what I glean from that is that it's, it, interacting with people that are not our age is very important. Uh, youth needs tempering with wisdom. Uh, and uh, older pragmatism needs to remember youthful ideals and conviction. Uh, each needs the other. Uh, this is one of the reasons in our own uh, country's government we have a House and a Senate in our Congress. Right? That's part of the idea. You, you want broader representation of all the people, and then you want some more seasoned veterans who can, uh, who can look at things with a more uh, moderate eye. So uh, I've been really enjoying our men's forums, and it sounds like the ladies' meetings are going well too, where young and old can listen to each other. And that's really important. We even sang about it, if you noticed, in Psalm 148, just a minute ago. Uh, we, we praise the Lord. By young and old, by maid and youth, his name and truth should be extolled. Right? So there's something to that. Uh, don't want to spend too much time on that. It's, it's just a hunch of mine. But Saul is the younger generation coming up. 
and he's zealous. And he speaks of that in, in later letters. He speaks of zeal without knowledge. And speaking of Israelites who do not believe in Christ. And I think he's thinking of himself in pre-conversion days. Saul goes off the rails here. He's persecuting the church. But God turns this travesty to good for those called to his purpose. The persecution leads to flight, right? Many believers flee, it says, scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, verse 2. And that's not a sin, notice, to, to flee persecution. Uh, flight leads to the spreading of the gospel when trials come, and we as believers respond differently than the world. Uh, they, they see the, the depth of faith, that, that, that faith goes deep, and it also goes wide with, with Philip, uh, right? They're, they're scattered far and wide. Uh, Tertullian it was who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's what happens here. That, so when we're persecuted or we're pressed by troubles, God has a way of turning that into explosive growth, either in ourselves and spiritual maturity uh, or in the number of those who believe, which we see in part here in Acts. And this is highly relevant. We prayed just last week for a CREC pastor in Belarus who had this very thing happen to him. He had to leave his own country for some security reasons. We don't know the details yet. But he had to leave. He's exiled. Uh, and it's likely a very similar kind of situation. So uh, one application to keep in mind there is to remember the prayer, do whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever it takes to grow me in Christ-likeness, bring that into my life. And that, that should be a scary prayer, because God may bring some significant trouble into your life to grow you where you wouldn't grow otherwise. So this persecution expands the witness of the church. That's the first three verses. Philip then goes to Samaria. He brings joy to Samaria. Uh, the joy is something I'll come back to. Philip, remember, is one of the seven deacons with Stephen. Uh, they're doing signs and wonders. Uh, Philip remembers Jesus' words, if one village rejects you, then go to the next. Shake the dust off your sandals, go to the next one. That's what Philip's doing. And even more, the, the imitation of Jesus is continuing. Uh, in the last chapter, Stephen imitated Jesus in his rebuke of the Jewish leaders and in his manner of death. Now Philip picks up the mantle and goes to Samaria, which Jesus also visited, and he stayed several days and had many converts in John 4. That's what we read in John 4. So we see not only Philip, but the apostles lingering in Samaria, preaching the gospel in many of the region's towns. And this isn't just a, a quick in-and-out operation to say that we've been there, that God loves Samaritans. And he's called many of them into his kingdom. They expected the Messiah too. Remember the woman at the well spoke of the Messiah. So Philip preaches the Christ. And it's the same word. And they, they accept and receive him. Now, the words evangel or evangelism or, or preach, uh, the, the, that Greek word appears several times in this chapter. It's very important. Preaching the good news is primary here. It's our message. It's the message that is our identity as evangelicals. And that's something to re remember that's very important. Uh, we, 
We here are, are covenant theology people. We're reformed theology people. And that theology is not opposed to basic gospel preaching. We need the evangel, the basic gospel. When people start to discover reformed theology and they're eating it up, and they're kind of in the cage stage, we call it, right? They often start to look down on the evangel as too elementary. And that's a bad place to be. Well, I've found the, the advanced level stuff. No, no, no. If, if you separate covenant theology from the good news that Jesus died for sinners, then all you have left is pride of mind. They, they go together. And that's very important to remember. So here you see in Acts the, the basic evangel being preached. And the, the text says, seeing and hearing, they believed. So the word and the miracles together are, are reinforcing each other. Remember that from the past chapters here in Acts 2. The miracles opened them to instruction, to hear the gospel. And the same thing, I believe, happens today uh, with uh, gifts that are analogous to healing. I don't think people today are vested with the gift of healing, but miraculous healings certainly happen, and they can open ears to the evangel. Or when we show compassion to those in need, when, when we show compassion to those who are hurting, they can open hearts to the good news. So that's the Samaritans. Remember how despised these Samaritans were too. Don't let that slip by you. These were not pure Jews. They were part Assyrian, pagan, they rejected Jerusalem worship and the Old Testament prophets. The woman at the well was astounded that Jesus would even talk to her. Right? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John 4 says. But the gospel is breaking down those walls. Jesus predicted it. He commanded it, really. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Judea. What's the very next place? Samaria. What a shocker. That was. But Philip takes up that mantle. So we have to beware of the mindset that people who do really awful things are just beyond the grace of God. Whether that's homosexuals or witches or atheist college professors. Take your pick, whatever kind of category you think. And we should just stay away from them so that they don't corrupt us or our kids. That's how the Jews thought of Samaritans. But Samaria is stage two in Christ's Great Commission program. <laughs> Philip purposely goes there to evangelize them. It's kind of a Jonah situation, right? God sends Jonah, the prophet, to a despised and unlikely people. Don't avoid or exclude the unusual, the weird. Philip goes to the Samaritans. Uh, for us, it might be uh, like, just think about our situation geographically. <laughs> it could be people at the crystal shops around the corner, right? Or, or it could be tatted people, trans people, pro-abortion people. Consider every person, every soul, one who needs the good news. That and these Samaritans come to the Lord in faith. And Philip and Peter and John receive them. They're baptized. 
And it's interesting that in Samaria, men and women are being baptized, while back in Jerusalem, Christians, men and women, are being imprisoned for the faith. That's striking. Persecution here is bringing more fruit. Uh, I happened to remember that um, one of the great Christian apologists, Justin Martyr, he was born in 90 A.D., maybe 100 A.D. He was born in Samaria. (laughs) So his parents or grandparents, we're not sure which, were probably converted by Philip here in Acts chapter 8. Justin Martyr. Good uh, apologist to read someday. It's astounding, the, the fruit that persecution brought. And they received the gospel with joy. Verse 8 is wonderful. And there was great joy in that city. It's a key mark of the church, joy. The, the story of the Samaritans converting uh, the Ethiopian ruler, the eunuch later we'll get to, both of them end with rejoicing. The gospel gives gladness, a lasting happiness that doesn't depend on what's going on right now. It's a deep-rooted joy. One of my favorite memories from church as a child is hymn sings on Sunday evenings. Uh, There'd be an extended time of of hymn sings. And I can still remember Pastor Van Heest, who baptized me. He would uh, get to a, a hymn or two that he just really loved, and he would be waving his arms, and he'd say, let's sing the chorus again. Just very animated, and you could just tell. In my heart there rings a melody there. Not the greatest lyrics, I admit, but the joy that, that he had. And that comes from believing that, that we're guilty and we need a Savior, and God has sent that Savior in the person of Jesus to pay the price for our sins from believing that God sent him to do this because he loves you and he wants you to be in fellowship with him forever. That's the source of our joy, is that basic gospel. So there's great joy in that city. Next we come, verse 9, to Simon the sorcerer. Uh, Here, uh, it's an interesting situation, this Simon character. The church is divided, frankly, in how to think of this guy. Was he deceiving people with quackery and sleight of hand? Or was there real demonic activity going on? Uh, We're not really sure. Whatever it was, he had a large following, and he lost it when Philip came. Uh, Simon had amazed the people, and now Simon himself is amazed at what Philip does. He, He sees the signs that Philip's doing, and it says he believes Now remember, the signs and the wonders from Philip are designed to help them believe. That's the point. But if you only believe in the power and not in the message, then you've still got nothing. There's a parallel there to back in John chapter 6, I think it is, when Jesus um, feeds the 5,000, right? Then it, it says that many believed and followed him. But then later on, when he gives them some hard words, they stop following him, they, they leave, right? So there is th- this, this belief that Scripture speaks of that's temporary and that falls away. And, and we have to be careful there. They're, so when, when they believe, it doesn't mean they necessarily have a regenerate heart, but there's some sort of belief going on. Well, uh, Simon believes because of the signs that he sees. Uh, so we have to um, 
think this through carefully, and we don't know, uh, frankly, what it is. When we, when we leave Simon in verse 24, it's kind of left unclear where his spiritual state winds up. We're not sure. It, it looks pretty negative throughout the whole story, I admit, but we don't know where he goes in the end. So uh, that's something to consider. Uh, and, it, and it's important for us, too. We ought to apply that to our own faith. Why do I believe in Jesus? Is it because I saw some miracle when I was 10? Is it because my parents just tell me to? Why is it that I believe in the Lord Jesus? We have to ask those questions. That's important. We don't want to get overly, morbidly introspective about that. We want to eventually turn our eyes back to Jesus himself and just trust him. But to ask ourselves why we're believing is often a good exercise. That's Simon the sorcerer. Uh, Verse 14, what we see next is the apostles come and the spirit falls as they lay their hands on these believers. They go to investigate the apostles. Uh, John had asked Jesus to call down fire on the Samaritans before. And now this same John is going to the Samaritans laying hands on them, and the Spirit is falling on them. Notice the contrast there. It's fascinating. So, uh, John and Peter, they find the fields ripe for harvest, which is exactly what Jesus said they would find when the Samaritans were coming out to them before in John chapter 4. So, these apostles are Christ's witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the Spirit falls on Jerusalem believers in chapter 2, and now on Samaritan believers in chapter 8, and then it's going to be Gentile believers in chapter 10. It, it, it's like Acts 1-8 is the outline of the whole book. So this is a, a Samaritan Pentecost, is what it is. It's interesting that the Spirit doesn't fall until the apostles come. That's, that's an oddity. Uh, Peter explains the pattern uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 38. Repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Spirit. So to not receive the Spirit when you come to faith, that's not normal. And Paul agrees in Romans 8. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Luke even highlights the abnormality uh, in verse 16. As yet he had not fallen upon them. So, so it's unusual. What's happening? I think God is broadcasting this new step that the gospel is taking, going to the Samaritans. This is so shocking and hard to accept that God does something kind of different and brand new and has the apostles go there in person, deliberately lay hands, the spirit falls, so that everybody around will say, okay, this is legit. That's, that's basically what's going on. So uh, it also shows that Philip and the Samaritan believers were under the apostles' authority. Uh, That's something else going on that's important. So uh, that's important. Some things in Acts are unique to that period in history, and they're not really patterns for us to follow. And, And this is one of those. Here we see the gospel officially stepping outside of Judea and Judaism for the first time after Christ's ascension. And that needed the explicit endorsement of the Spirit and of the Apostles. And and this unique arrangement is how God does that. 
I'm spending a lot of time on this because there's uh, many in the Christian world today who would say this is a pattern of how we ought to do things. And I'm arguing against that. They would say here you've got a pattern of a later baptism after you come to faith. Now, yes, we should seek to grow. We should be led by the Spirit. But, but we don't have to pursue an experience of spirit baptism uh, separate from our conversion to prove that we're true Christians or, or super-Christians. That's what I'm getting at here with spending some time on this. That, that steals assurance away from true believers. If you've, if you've got to be baptized in the Spirit in some intense emotional experience Sunday by Sunday, and then that stops happening to you, and now all of a sudden you're doubting if you're really saved. So uh, we have to watch out for that kind of thing. This isn't really a, a pattern uh, to follow. It's a unique step in redemptive history. Uh, so the Spirit is given to us. The Spirit comes upon us. The Spirit does change us. In, in the literal sense, now I'm going to say some kind of weird things. Hang on to your hats a minute. In the literal sense, every Christian is possessed. We're possessed by the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in us, given us life, drawn us in faith to the Father, convicted us of sin. We don't do any of that on our own. We do that when the Spirit brings a new life into us. There's an alien, a divine presence that comes into us and does this to us. I'm trying to make this sound a little spooky even, if you get the idea. Right? We are not our own. We're bought with a price. Right? We're sealed, we're marked, we're branded with the Holy Spirit. And that, that bothers us, uh, in large part, I say, would say, because we're so driven by autonomy. We, we must be our own people and direct our own will. And if, if we don't have that, that freaks us out. I remember watching Star Trek, the original series. That, that was always the cliffhanger, right? Whenever you got to a commercial break, the, the problem, the, the freak out moment, was that there was some alien that now was in control of the ship. And it wasn't Captain Kirk anymore. Ha ah, ha, we're not in control. That's the big problem that, that modern man faces. Well, no, we're not. Uh, the, uh, our sinful nature uh, rules in our hearts unless the Spirit of God comes in and, and undoes that. And, and those are the two choices. Well, moving on. Uh, so the apostles come, uh, and, the, and it's interesting here that Philip the evangelist is, is doing all the converting. The, the apostles come and then lay hands on. The Spirit comes down. That's interesting. There's some application there for the mission field, just to point out briefly. Uh, when, when a new people group begins to convert to Christ, there needs to be close communication between the evangelist and his leaders. And just the fact that we hardly even have a category for the evangelist's leaders is a problem, <laughs> right? There needs to be oversight, and evangelists should not be lone rangers with no oversight like that. Philip has the apostles uh, overseeing what he's doing. Same thing for us. We should have oversight of what's going on. But we should have evangelists, too. That's something else that I think this points to. Uh, and, and one reason I say that is because Ephesians 4.11 
uh, lists it as, specifically as uh, a gift that Jesus gives to his church. Pastors, teachers, evangelists. So, uh, back, uh, moving on now to verse 18. When Simon sees that, that the, through the laying on of the hands, apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offers them money. So Simon sees where the real spiritual influence is here, and he wants it. Right? This has been his stock and trade. He, he doesn't care what spirit it is. He wants the influence. He wants the power. Peter renounces the sin of simony, from which Simon's name uh, is derived. Buying and selling spiritual power. In one sense, you can't do that. The spirit will not be bought. He blows where he will. In another sense, the corrupt church has done this for centuries, buying and selling church offices, and that has had real influence in church history. So uh, we ought to keep that, this kind of dynamic in mind. People still seek power and prestige through socializing at church or through church office. That does happen. It's a bad business, and Scripture warns against it. The rich find themselves in the inner circle of this life, and Simon is used to being there. Uh, and uh, God doesn't work that way. Psalm 138 says that God regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. That's an interesting way to put it. It, it, it totally turns the tables on those who say, I know what's going on, I'm in the inner circle, because I've got the influence, I've got the money. And God says to that kind of person, I only know you from a long ways away. So that's Simon the sorcerer. Peter, in his rebuke, he aims for the heart. It's something that parents should imitate when our children sin. Your heart is not right before God in this. Repent. And notice that Simon professed faith. Philip baptized him. And yet his heart wasn't right before God. This happens. Not all professors of faith, not all the baptized are true Christian believers. But then, we, as I said, we don't know for sure what happens to Simon after this. Did, did he re, remain a believer? Was he ever one? Did he repent? His response in verse 24 isn't all that encouraging. He doesn't pray and repent himself. He focuses on avoiding the judgment that Peter predicted. <clears throat> well, uh, there are stories from the early church, uh, some take as facts, some as legend, uh, that this character, Simon the sorcerer, he started the Christian Gnostic heresy. The idea that there's some secret knowledge that will save you. Uh, and that kind of fits with the desire that he has to be in the inner circle. So you can kind of see where that idea would come from. We don't know if it's the case. But that's a tendency we ought to, tendency we ought to be aware of in ourselves, to, to, to know the secrets that only a few others know. That's very enticing to some types of people. And that's, that's not what we're after. We're after the basic evangel being spread far and wide to the whole world. That's what we want. We're not some secret mystery knowledge cult. But we want everybody to understand Reformed theology fully and in depth. That, that's what we're after. Well, that, that's the, the rebuke to Simon. Uh, next we have the Ethiopian ruler in verse 
28. Philip uh, is led to him. And I'll uh, run more quickly through this. Uh, This should encourage us, first of all, that God builds his church against all odds. Uh, Philip meets this Ethiopian in a huge desert, right? Right when he's reading two of the clearest messianic verses in all of the Old Testament. (laughs) So, So it's a matter of how would he happen to meet him in, I don't know what it was, 500, 1,000 square miles, and there they meet, and he's reading Isaiah 53 right then. It's astounding what God is arranging here. Uh, This man is from south of Egypt, uh, modern-day Ethiopia, perhaps Sudan. He's a Jewish proselyte, ethnically Gentile, an Ethiopian, religiously a Jew, worshiping the God of Abraham in Jerusalem, reading the Old Testament prophets, owning a scroll, which only the rich would probably do. He has great authority. He's the treasurer for the queen. In our terms, this would be like the secretary of the treasury. This is a high cabinet position guy. We always refer to him as the eunuch. In the bulletin, I just changed it to ruler, just to make the point. This guy is high influence. And scripture speaks of this kind of situation. Psalm 68, Zephaniah 3, I don't have time to go there, but it speaks of people from Egypt and from Ethiopia coming and bringing offerings to the God of Abraham in Jerusalem. The Old Testament prophets uh, speak of this kind of person. And here the Spirit uh, leads Philip to go and speak to this man. He's wondering what Isaiah 53 is about. Just a quick application there. Every now and then you'll get a softball question from a co-worker or a neighbor. Right? That's what this is. (laughs) And when you recognize it, take it. And that's what Philip does. Right? Who is he talking about here? Is is Isaiah talking about Isaiah? Is he talking about somebody else? Well, we know exactly who he's talking about. Take that opportunity. And I like 2, verse 31. He says, how can I understand unless someone teaches me or guides me? That's uh, fascinating. Uh, The Spirit wants to use human teachers to open the Word of God into our hearts. We want to listen to teachers and learn and test the Spirit's. It's one thing that's always encouraged me about our congregation. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of times when I'm talking to you, uh, you'll mention a podcast or a book that you're listening to, something like that. Uh, you're, you're searching out the truth, listening to Scripture on, uh, in the car, on the way to work, that kind of thing. Uh, that's what this man is doing. The chariot, he's in a chariot. He, it's literally a car. <laughs> so take off the technology thing. He, he's literally got his earbuds in, going down the road, reading the Bible. That's what he's doing. So he evangelizes this guy. The man believes. Philip appears to have made mention of baptism, as Peter did, because he says, hey, there's water here. How about if I just be baptized? Verse 36. And, uh, and so uh, Philip baptizes him. I had a whole thing on verse 37. I think I'm going to skip it because I'm past time. But there's a a textual variant there. You can ask me about that later if you're interested. So uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, notice this is way beyond the reach of where the apostles are at this point, right? The the Spirit's reach is much further than any man uh, is. The apostles could catch up to the Spirit in Samaria, but they're not going all the way to Ethiopia. 
And that shows, uh, I think, two truths about the church that, that we have a hard time holding together sometimes. One, the Spirit blows where He will. He does what He will. And sometimes we're too skeptical about that. Uh, but the second truth is, the apostles are called to rule and bring order and purity to the growing church. That's also the Spirit's work. Uh, some see that as quenching the Spirit, as putting God in a box. But no, the overseers have this task to, to observe the Spirit's work in you, to point it out to you, to point out when it isn't there, maybe. <laughs> and, and we're inadequate in that overseer work uh, in, of the Spirit in our hearts, but we do what we can. That's what we're called to, and that's what the, the apostles are doing. But notice, if you remember, the title of this book is not just Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. Well, Philip is led to further ministry on the coast. He's taken away. I think there's a, a parallel here that he's imitating Jesus again. right? On the Emmaus Road, what happens when Jesus breaks bread with the two all of a sudden, he disappears from their sight. Well, that was one of the sacraments. Here you have Philip, the other sacrament, baptism. And as soon as he comes up out of the water, he disappears from their sight. I think that's pretty fascinating. Philip and Stephen are both imitating Jesus. Well, I'll, uh, I'll close with this. The, the, the persecution leads to the scattering. And that leads to more expansion of the church geographically. The Ethiopian isn't headed back to Jerusalem. He's headed to Ethiopia. He's going home. And he's going to take the gospel with him. Same thing in uh, Acts 2, that, at Pentecost. All those believers returned to their homes, and the gospel was spread. So Philip, in a sense you could say, was responsive to the Spirit. He was flexible, and he went to unlikely places as a result. Don't take for granted those chance encounters that you have that, that don't fit into your to-do list, that, that aren't on your agenda for the day. But be ready for those encounters that don't fit your expectations. That's what happens to Philip here. The main point is that Jesus was preached by Philip in several different situations. Situations will vary greatly, Right? Uh, Samaritans rejected most of Israel's prophets. And the Ethiopian is closely reading a prophet's scroll. <laughs> what a contrast. The Samaritans are very willing to believe. Simon is a crafty manipulator. The Ethiopian is a thoughtful reader. <laughs> All different kinds of people. Right? Philip preaches to big crowds in Samaria. But he's one-on-one -on -one in a private chariot with this Ethiopian ruler. You're going to find yourself in different situations. Preach Jesus. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Unjustly, Isaiah 53 says. So I'll just close with this. You think you've been treated unjustly. Look to Jesus instead. Any injustice or trouble that we face... We can basically say we deserve for our sins. But Jesus was blameless, and he took it on purpose for your sins. And so we turn to Christ. God's gospel reaches unlikely people.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for pointing us once again to the evangel, to your son Jesus, to the good news that that he took on the greatest injustice of all. And that uh, out of that uh, came uh, the blessed, glorious fruit of forgiveness, atonement, uh, reconciliation with you. Help us, Lord, to appreciate that that to continue returning to you day by day for all that we need in your word, by your spirit, here at your table. All this we pray in the name of Jesus and we sing with you. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47 for our communion exhortation. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again he measured a thousand and brought me out through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again he measured one thousand and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again he measured one thousand and it was a river that I could not cross. For the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim. A river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there. For they will be healed, and everything will live when it, wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by, the, by it from Engedi to Enegliam, and they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. This table is a reminder of Ezekiel's river. This table is never too small. It grows to fit whoever comes in faith. It's big enough even for Samaritans. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. Let him put out the raging fire of sin in your heart with his living water. Don't make this table so small that only you and your kind fit around it. All Christ's people are welcome. Don't make this table so small that you can't come 
because you failed in the fight against sin this week. Come and profess faith in Christ. Tell the world that you trust him for grace, for strength, for help, for joy, for truth, for deliverance from temptation. And believe that he is big enough. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. We do invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us. You're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So come and welcome. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.